The young, neatly groomed man sat across the table from me, sipping his coffee. He'd been referred to me by the pastor of the church my wife and I were attending at the time. That was so I could try and establish a mentorship relationship with him. I didn't know him well. It was only our second meeting, and I wasn't there to judge him, but he appeared to me to be doing well on many aspects of his life. He was providing for his family, healthy, and concerned about pleasing God. He told me about several Bible studies and Christian discussion and support groups he was a part of every week. He explained how busy his life was between doing a lot of overtime at work, having a growing family, and church-related activities. From what I knew and what he was telling me, there were no outward signs or symptoms of anything wrong in this man's life. Why, then, was he experiencing what he called confusion, anxiety, and guilty feelings about not knowing what his ministry should be? I felt the same way as this guy for many years of my life. I'd sat under teaching about what it was I should be doing as a Christian. This wasn't only regarding my behavior, but also what I should be doing to serve God. Sometimes I was told I should serve according to what my gifts or talents are, since they are from God and should be used first for His purposes. So, I was also told that I needed to figure out what my talents and gifts might be. I was also taught that I was a missionary, no matter if I went to a far-off land or if I never moved away from where I was born. And if nothing else, I could serve and support others in their mission field by giving them money and, of course, praying for them. In addition to figuring out my gifts, talents, ministry, and mission field, it was always stressed to me that if my church was meeting, a part of serving God was to be in attendance. When you have a church that has Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday and Wednesday evening services, along with separate small group Bible study, you better be there at all of them. And don't even think about not serving God by failing to show up at the potluck after Sunday morning service. Sincerely wanting to please God, I always felt a great deal of pressure and guilt to figure out my gifts, talents, who I was supposed to be a missionary to, and what my ministry was. There were so many more committees I could have served on, so many soundboards and projectors I could have operated, so many choirs I could have sang in for Jesus, and so many Bibles I could have handed out to relieve my conscience. I could have gone on mission trips with the youth group to Mexico. I could have altered my family's life even more to give more money while Angela and I already struggled to raise our children on a single income. All those things would have been so much more in line with what I was being taught. The possibilities were and remain limitless. There is no shortage of ideas that people have about telling others what they should do to serve Jesus. In the next parable that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives, he informs his servants about the basic principle behind what it is he believes they should be doing while they await his return. This is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 15. It is just like a man traveling on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his possessions. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his abilities, and then immediately took his journey. As in the previous parable Jesus has already relayed during the Olivet Discourse, we see a person who has servants who is going away on a journey. As we'll see, this parable, like the others, concerns what happens when the master returns. Because of the context of this story, we know that the master in this story is undoubtedly Jesus. One of the most important tasks we have to take care of with this parable, like previous ones, is to define the symbols that are used. In this case, it's important to define what the talents represent. Well, the talent was a unit of money in Jesus' day. A talent used by Jesus in its literal form would not have represented some sort of skill or ability, as the word means in the English language today. It would have meant a monetary unit. However, we are dealing with symbolism, so it's not likely that we're simply talking about money, but rather something else that has value. Some have taken this parable to mean that we're to use whatever spiritual gifts God has given us 
to the best of our ability. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians had some interesting things to say that parallel what's being said in this parable by Jesus. In the following passage, note how Paul points out that each of those who Jesus has taken, quote, captive, unquote, has indeed been given a gift. Also note, like in the parable, this passage is about the master going away or ascending. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he's ascended, what is it but that he also descended first unto the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up for all above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, and for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's clear why some may believe that the talents in the parable of the talents are symbolic for the gifts Jesus gives his followers. Spiritual gifts, after all, are something that can only be given to us by our Master through the Holy Spirit. However, there's more to think about before making a final determination on what the talents might represent. The parable of the talents has also been used by many to make a case for the biblical road to wealth. Give your money that God's given you to godly institutions, and you'll get more money. You just need to have faith that God is true to His Word. Or, so the theory goes. I have no comment here on if that principle is true or not. My only comment is, if it is true, my studies have led me to the conclusion that those who teach the reciprocity principle need to look elsewhere for scriptural proof. The talent is a symbol for a thing of value which is given to the servants by the Master, who we've identified as Jesus. Further, as we will see, the talent not only has value when the Master leaves, but it still has value when the Master returns. Well, that rules out money or property, or any material goods. Everything that you can see or touch is a material item subject to corruption and will pass away. When Jesus returns and you're raptured, your money will have no value. This being understood, money and other temporal items may still play a part in all this. More on that later. But for now, we must ask the question, what is it that Jesus left us with, which will still have value when he returns and he dwells among his servants? Because of the end times context, you know, entire chapter 24 of Matthew, this parable obviously was not only directed at Jesus' twelve disciples, but was meant to transcend the centuries and speak to his followers until he returns. All the original disciples have been dead and gone for over 1900 years. Since that's true, Jesus cannot be talking about something that he could physically have given anyone in person. What he's talking about has to be something that he can give to someone in the 21st century as easily as the 1st century. In the parable, the master gives the talents to different people in different amounts according to their abilities. Certainly, through Jesus, we have grace and mercy given to us. He gives us love and the ability to love others. He gives us faith. We may be able to make a case that he shows some more mercy than others, since some have transgressed more than others. Since Jesus sometimes referred to faith in terms of quantities, like when he said someone had little faith, some may have been given more faith than others. It is interesting that the Master knows the abilities of each his servants and gives to them accordingly. Abilities to do what? Well, it's the ability to use the talents that he gives to us. It's the ability to deliver or invest the talent. But the ability is the way in which we're able to use the talent or the means in which we deliver or invest the talent. It is not the talent itself. As some attempt to understand what the talents represent, they tend to confuse the ability or delivery mechanism of the talents for the talents themselves. It is important not to miss the fact that the master in the parable left his possessions, or goods, or stuff, 
in the care of the three servants in addition to the various amounts of talents. Being good stewards of the master's possessions, besides the talents where each were given, would have been a high importance to the master. The master would hardly want to come home and find all of his stuff had been lost, stolen, broken, sold off, or fallen into disrepair. Certainly, everything a servant owns belongs to their master. Anything so we possess or have authority over should be taken care of and stewarded with that in mind. Besides our physical possessions, that would include our families and our job. Most importantly, Jesus also left us with his household to take care of when he's gone. That includes his word, the gospel, and his other servants. In other words, his household consists of the ecclesia, who are alive and on earth today. Moving on, Matthew chapter 25, verses 16 to 18. Then the one that received the five talents went and put them to work and made five more talents. In the same way, the one that had two gained two more. But the one who had one went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in it. Whatever these talents represent, it must be something that can be used or put to work in some way. Secondly, these talents must have the ability to grow. You can also have the option of not doing anything with whatever the talents represent. Finally, like money, there must be many different ways to use this commodity. Well, one way to attempt to identify what the talents represent is to engage in deductive reasoning. Let's take the observations we've made about the parable and then ask questions to determine what fits and what doesn't fit. What is it that Jesus gives us that, number one, can be given to any of his servants throughout the ages? Two, can be given to people in different measure according to their ability to use them. Three, will have lasting value in the next age as well as this one. Four, can by choice be put to work by those it is given to. Five, as a result of being put to work, will actually increase. And six, can be put to use in different ways. Well, let's look at material wealth first. How does material wealth fit when we ask these questions? Can it be given to anyone throughout the ages? Well, yes. Can it be given to people in different measure? Definitely. Will it have lasting value into the next age? Well, not for those who are resurrected. Not for the elect who rule and reign with Jesus. For the inhabitants of the earth, whatever their monetary system will be, yes, of course. Can it be put to work in our lives? Yes. As a result of being put to work, will it actually increase? Sometimes. Can it be used in different ways? Yes. Well, material wealth gets five out of six matches. That's not good enough. Additionally, even though we didn't ask the question, it must be noted that according to the documentation found in the Bible, Jesus didn't appear to be concerned with material wealth. It's very doubtful that some of Jesus' last counsel to his disciples would have been financial advice. What about spiritual gifts? This is not meant to be an argument for or against what form spiritual gifts may take or the role that they may play in the modern church, but assuming, at least for the moment, they play some part in the modern-day believer's life. Can they be given to anyone throughout the ages? I would argue, yes. Can they be given to people in different measure? Yes. Will they have lasting value in eternity? That's debatable. According to some, when Jesus returns, gifts will no longer be necessary and will pass away. Can they be put to work or use by us? Yes. Can they be used in different ways? Sure, there's different gifts to use in different ways. As a result of being put to work, will they actually increase? This is debatable also. If it's actually God that gives a gift, in this case, some sort of supernatural ability, can you cause your gift to grow, or does God just give you more of the gift, or perhaps another gift? I don't know. It's debatable. Four yeses and a couple maybes. However, gifts 
could be said to resemble more of an unearned or unlearned ability than something of value that can be invested, spent, or traded. How about the word of God? This is something that Jesus left for his servants. And remember what Jesus just said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That was in Matthew 24:35. Can the word of God be given to anyone throughout the ages? Absolutely. Although up until about the 20th century, much of the world's population was illiterate and dependent on receiving the word through others. Bibles were also not nearly as available as they are now. Can the word of God be given to people in different measure? Maybe, if we're talking about understanding, but the entire word of God is available in the form of the Bible to all believers. Will the word have lasting value in eternity? Absolutely. Can the word be put to work in our lives? Of course it can. As a result of being put to work, can the word of God actually increase? No. Only one's knowledge of the word can increase. As a result of putting the word of God to work in our lives, we grow in wisdom and an understanding of God's word. If we seek the meaning of God's word, we find the meaning and grow in the knowledge of his word. Finally, can it be used in different ways? Yes, it can. So the word of God is close, but it's not a perfect match. Everything we are comes from God. What about the abilities that he gives to his people? Can ability be given to anyone throughout the ages? Yes. Can ability or abilities be given to people in different measure according to their ability? Yes. But that, as you can see, kind of leads to circular reasoning. I'm not even sure what it means to have more ability according to your ability. So let's move on. Will ability have lasting value in eternity? It depends what the ability is. The ability needs to be defined more clearly. The ability to throw a frisbee, for example, may or may not have value in eternity. However, the ability to love others will never pass away. Can abilities be put to work in our lives? Well, yes. As a result of being put to work, can our abilities actually increase? This depends on a number of factors, such as the ability, our age, our resources, and our time to invest in developing the ability. According to the laws of thermodynamics and the curse of God in Genesis 3.19, all of my abilities will one day fail. Can the ability be invested in a variety of ways? Uh, probably. Well, there's too many depends and a circular reasoning problem to be the answer. Again, abilities seem to be more of a way to deliver talents rather than being the talents themselves. What about God-given wisdom, faith, and love for others. Can wisdom, faith, and the ability to show love to others be given to anyone throughout the ages by Jesus? Yes. Can wisdom, faith, and the ability to show love to others be given to people in different measure? Yes. Some have more wisdom and faith than others, and some have a greater capacity to show love than others. Will wisdom, faith, and the ability to show love to others have lasting value into eternity? Yes. 1 Corinthians 13.8 tells us, Charity, or love, never fails. But where there be prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it shall pass away. If we read on in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it says, And now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. Can wisdom, faith, and love be put to work in our lives? Absolutely. As a result of being put to work, can wisdom, faith, and the ability to show love to others actually increase? Yes. Can wisdom, showing love to others, and faith be spent in various ways? Yes. Millions of them. Six out of six yes answers for wisdom, faith, and the ability to show love to others. As I began to review all of the Bible has to say about the kind of love, wisdom, and faith that only comes from God, I decided that perhaps volumes of books could be written on how those things can properly be related to the parable of the talents. For now, 
I need to sum it up by saying that I believe that those three things are all closely related, perhaps inseparable, and that they make up what is symbolically being represented in this parable as the talents. To put it a little more concisely, a talent is God-given love used according to God-given wisdom, both of which are only made possible because of God-given faith. Remember that the talents symbolically stand for something else. That something else does not have to be boiled down to one word. That's the beauty of symbolism. If I had to come up with one Greek word that would adequately define the talent in this parable, it'd probably be a word that doesn't exist, which is made up of three different words, faith, or pistis in Greek, wisdom, or sophia, and love, which is agapao in Greek. So you'd put all three of those together and it'd be something like pistis sophia agapaho. If there's a need for such a word, there you go. God-given love being put to work according to God-given wisdom because of our God-given faith can take on too many forms to list here. Remember the story of the wise servant that Jesus told at the end of Matthew 24? Well, in that story, we see an example of a servant who puts wisdom and love to work by giving the other servants their, quote, food at the proper time, unquote. Because the servant had been faithful and acted and put love for others to work, the master rewarded him by putting him over all of his, the master's, possessions. Contrast this to the unwise servant who does not put love to work. He beats his fellow servants. When the master returns, the penalty for not putting the love to work was severe. Matthew 24:35 puts it this way, And he shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Later in the parable of the talents, we see the unwise servant who did not put his talent to use receive a very similar penalty when the master returns. It's going to go like this. And cast ye there the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's going to be in Matthew 25, verse 30. Loving others is important to Jesus. There are many scriptures dealing with just how important love is. The evidence is mountainous. When asked how one inherits eternal life, Jesus answered in the following way. This is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as, your, as thyself. And he said to him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and you shall live. Faith and love have an interesting relationship. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ... Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. That's found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 to 6. Here's something else Paul had to say, found in chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Maybe this is TMI, I don't know. <laughs> but even though I've been known to tear up for things as silly as hamburger commercials, and I'm always getting suckered right in and almost losing my composure whenever they show soldiers returning to their wife and kids on the news, I'm not a real squishy guy that would typically be the one to go around talking about the importance of love. I'd even go so far as to say that if my personal preferences determine the rules of how the Bible should be interpreted, I'd probably reach a different conclusion here as to what the talents represent. However, I can't deny that love makes up a large part of the definition 
of what the talents seem to embody in this parable. Love can be felt as an emotion, but it can be confused with so many other feelings such as pity or concern, guilt, and helplessness. Hormones can come into play when people feel love. There are various kinds of love described in the Bible. There's God-given love, and there's love that's inherent to all mankind. The truth is, I don't know where one feeling and type of love starts and the next feeling ends. When I watch starving people in foreign countries on television, or images of bald six-year-olds that are dying of leukemia in a children's hospital, or I see things like battered women's shelters on the news, I feel a number of emotions. I wish I could help every one of the victims of disease, poverty, starvation, and abuse that I see. Is it God-given love, empathy, and compassion which moves me to want to help these people? Or is it pity and guilt? Where does one feeling start and the next one end? My point is that many different feelings can result in one being motivated to do something loving. So to clear up the confusion, I would say that love is the action that can pick up where guilt and pity leave off. Acting in love towards one another looks like the thing that our master really expects of his servants while he's away. It appears that anything done apart from the love of Christ ultimately has no value. The Apostle Paul put it this way, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. That's from 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. How we act in love can take many different forms. There's millions of followers of Jesus and probably millions of ways that love can be shown by them. This seems to kind of bring us back around to the delivery mechanisms of love, our gifts, our resources, and our abilities. Those that have arrived at other conclusions as to what the talents represent are likely only taking a broader or narrower view than what I've done here. That's to say, they're putting into different words how when Christ-like love is spent, invested, or shown. They're talking about ministries or methods of how love is delivered. For example, people often show love by giving money to support various efforts, very various missions. Followers of Christ will use their spiritual gifts and abilities as they show love for others. In both of these cases, I argue that giving money or using gifts and abilities are all simply delivery methods and not the talent itself. Love, obtained through faith, used according to wisdom, is the God-given commodity they are delivering by using their gifts, talents, and money. God-given wisdom and love have to go hand in hand. How to spend the master's talents or love he's given you requires God-given wisdom. James chapter 3 verse 17 tells us this, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So James is telling us all sorts of stuff that wisdom will do for us as we act in love. Remember, each servant was given a finite amount of talents by the master in this parable. Although the talents can grow, they're not unlimited. Whereas God has unlimited capacity to love, we as humans have a limited capacity to deliver love. We're finite creatures. God is not. A man who spends his evening delivering food boxes to the poor after he's been at his job all day may not be showing love to his children who hardly ever get to see him. That's okay. The video games and television are on to take his place. The youth minister who's busy raising other people's kids may be neglecting the needs of his wife. That's okay. Someone else will be willing to do that too. 
Similarly, if I send my entire income to some feed-the-children type organization, I'll be out on the street making myself a liability and dependent on someone else for love. For many, that would put their families at risk and they may even lose their job, leaving them with no money to feed anyone. That would be love spent without the wisdom. Love and wisdom must be inseparable. Given your finite amount of talents you have to spend in your figurative wallet, how will you spend them? As you answer this, first remember that they are the master's talents, not yours. Secondly, before you go looking for investment opportunities, remember that the master left you all his possessions to take care of too. That means figuratively, and probably literally, making sure that you're paying the regular bills that come in. It means taking care of regular maintenance and running the household while the master is away. How does this translate to the real world? How should you wisely spend the love entrusted to you by your master? How that's accomplished by many may appear to lack any form of sensationalism. It'll just look pretty normal. Especially to others who don't know how much is in your figurative wallet and how much your master has left in your care. Spending your talents may mean that by the end of the day, you've spent the entire day working a job to lovingly put food on the table for your family and pay for sending your kids to a school that teaches about Jesus in addition to teaching about math. Spending your love wisely might mean that you take over for your wife or husband when you get home for work and supervise the kids so he or she can take care of some of their basic needs, like taking a shower. While they're doing that, you'll share your love with your kids. Spending love might mean that you're caring for an elderly parent who is ill and possibly dying. This act of love may even be causing you to temporarily go into debt and run a love deficit. In other words, you may need the love from others to help make it through. Maybe there are people at work that are incredibly challenging to be around, or people who even anger us. People to whom showing love is tiring after simply taking care of what it is that the Master has left you to routinely take care of, by the end of the week, your faith-based love wallet may be pretty empty, and you have very little discretionary talents left to invest. There are those that have a lighter burden when it comes to routine responsibilities. They may have more talents left in their wallet at the end of the week to invest. There are also those who have been given a greater capacity to show love. These are those who have been given more talents according to their abilities. Having greater abilities may come in the form of being more energetic. Maybe they're a better time manager, they're more articulate, they're better educated, or maybe they have more financial resources. Maybe their genetics has brought about a greater physical strength or organic intelligence. Maybe their life experience has given them the ability to communicate and relate better with youth or people from different lands. Maybe God's given them more ability to be empathetic with others than the average person. It could be that they have leadership skills that inspire people, or possibly it's indeed a spiritual gift that they've received that has given them the greater ability to show love. These are all abilities that may affect the number of talents that God gives to people to spend. People in full-time ministries may appear to have a greater capacity to show love because that's what their job inherently involves. They may also have greater resources at their disposal devoted to showing love, which increases their ability to do so. Supporting those in full-time ministry is often a great way for those who don't have as much time or limited resources by themselves to show love. I'm sure that our Master loves it when he sees us teaming up with our co-servants to show love in his name. That could be likened to pooling our talents to make a greater investment that none of us could make on our own. Is that, like, is that a mutual fund? I don't know. What God has given you to deal with in your life what God-given abilities you have, and how much capacity to love that God has given you, based on your abilities and resources, is only truly known by you and God. There's one thing we can know for sure. 
Even if you only have one talent left over at the end of each week, it's better to invest it than to bury it in the ground like the one servant did. It is not my objective to undermine anyone's good intentions for the kingdom of God. There are hundreds of great love-based ministries in existence. However, this issue confuses, distracts, and depresses followers of Jesus who are trying to figure out how best to serve Him. Now, it's not my objective here to undermine anyone's good intentions for the kingdom of God. There are hundreds of great love-based ministries in existence. However, this issue confuses, distracts, and depresses followers of Jesus who are just trying to figure out how best to serve Him. And it's the depression is not coming from Jesus. It's coming from man. I've heard many, many sermons over five decades of man's ideas how I should serve God in order to use my own talents. With the threat of what happens if we don't use our talents, like the wicked and lazy servant hanging over my head, these sermons always used to leave me feeling guilty and inadequate, no matter what my life looked like at the time. I do not believe I'm unique in experiencing those feelings. These sermons have taken on the form of encouragement to, quote, discover my spiritual gifts, unquote, or to, quote, determine my ministry, unquote, and to figure out how to serve. Using the parable of the talents, some speakers have attempted to use guilt to get me to give more money. Well, due to my sin nature, I admittedly can still get a little irritated when a co-bond servant of Christ, pastor or other, tries to tell me how to spend the master's talents he's entrusted to me. I also admit that the same may be true when someone tries to compel me to take part in an organized effort in the name of Christ, which appears to only be for the sake of having an organized effort in the name of Christ. However, I generally no longer experience feelings of guilt now that I have a clear understanding of the parable of the talents. In fact, I've come to view other Christians' ideas of how to spend the talents God has entrusted me as investment opportunities. When I get up in the morning, I understand that I am 100% owned by my Lord Jesus. I am His bondservant. I represent Him and His interests in my home and community. As I reach into my figurative pocket each day, I find that His Holy Spirit has refilled my wallet with His talents, His love. He's put in just the right amount that He knows that I can use on His behalf. It's always enough according to my abilities. And it's up to me as I go through life each day doing business on behalf of the Master to determine how to spend those talents. I'm going to probably spend them differently each day as I come across different situations, people, needs, and investment opportunities. I don't need to spend long hours determining my purpose or my ministry. My purpose is to do business for my master in his absence in response to whatever he puts in my path today. I recognize that he's given each of his servants differing amounts of talents or love according to their ability to use them. I also recognize my master has a large organization and he has millions of things that need to be taken care of each day. In any given day, my master's talents will be spent by millions of his different servants in tens of millions of different ways, arguably most of which were unplanned and unforeseen, requiring no formal ministry, organized effort to serve, or recognition ahead of time of gifts or abilities. Some servants may spend all their talents providing for their family today and raising their children to love God. Some will spend all of their talents on their spouse and have none left to spend elsewhere today. Some, whom God has positioned in places of authority, will use their talents to make or influence decisions that will allow the love of Christ to impact their workplace or community. Some servants of the Master will have been given enough talents to take care of their family and still be able to fly off to Africa and help feed thousands. Some will use them to prepare a Bible lesson. Others will talk about Jesus to strangers at school. 
Servants will spend their talents comforting loved ones dying in the hospital, taking elderly parents to the doctor, teaching a grandchild a song about Jesus, or making cookies for a gathering of the ecclesia. How servants of Jesus spend their talents today may not be the same way they spend their talents or show Christ's love tomorrow. Our situations all change as we grow older. God recognizes our changes in ability to put His talents to work. The one who once had many abilities to do so may now have Alzheimer's or may be grieving the loss of a child. I have no idea how my fellow bondservants of my Master, Jesus, are spending the talents that He gave them. It's not my business. I don't know how many talents they were given. I don't know the depths of their ability. I am in no position to judge others how they are using their talents. Those that appear to me to have not been given many talents may be outspending me at a rate of ten to one from God's perspective. As we see in the parable of the talents, every servant is only responsible to their master. Each must give an accounting of how they use their talents to him. Perhaps one way to spend the love that I've been given is to understand all this about my co-bond servants. Let's talk about digging a hole for a minute. <laughs> Angela and I have lived on the same three acres of property for coming up on, oh, 1987, however long that is. You know, 30-some-odd years now. When we moved here, we saw the potential the property had. But the more immediate reason was because our financial situation was changing for the worse, and it was more affordable. There were 60-some pickup loads of scrap metal that I pickaxed up out of the ground and hauled off the property, along with the top half of a school bus, most of a couple car bodies, and 26 rusty bed springs that had been placed along the creek. There were sheds full of miscellaneous auto parts and logging paraphernalia. There was an open cesspit in the backyard that had covered with a sheet of plywood, and we had to go outside to answer the telephone. There was no insulation in the walls or on many of the bare electrical wires I found in the attic. And the only heat source in our then 850-square-foot home was a small, inefficient wood stove. There were thousands of hours of grueling labor involved in transforming our home into what it is today over the last 30 years. It's still far from a palace or even what some might consider nice, but our home is drastically different than it once was. From being covered in sweat and insulation in a 120-degree attic to digging out 30 yards of dirt from under the house by hand in the freezing cold while laying on my back. All of that work. I have to say that my least favorite task has always been digging a hole or ditches. <laughs> Where we live, the unpleasant experience of digging the rocky soil can be very physically demanding and frustrating. Based on my personal digging experience, when I think of how much easier it would have been for the servant who had been given one talent to take it to the bank to earn interest rather than digging a hole to hide it in, I have to ask a question. Was this guy an idiot? <laughs> It took a great deal more effort on this servant's part to hide his talent than to invest it. So let's move on in the parable. This is Matthew 25, verses 19 to 23. After a long time had passed, the master of those same servants returned and settled accounts with them. And so the one who had received five talents came and brought five additional talents, saying, Master, you entrusted me with five talents, and look! I've gained five more. His master replied to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Over many things I will make you a ruler. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The one that had two talents also came and said, Master, you entrusted me with the two talents, and look, I've gained two more talents. His master replied to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Over many things, I will make you a ruler. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The theme of the return of the master is repeated from an earlier parable. He's come to settle accounts with his servants. 
what have his servants done with what he left them? It's interesting to note here that what the servants were given never really belonged to them. They were only stewards of the possessions and talents that were entrusted to them. The master has come back to check on what clearly belongs to him. Verses 19 to 23 in chapter 25 tell a story of two servants who both did well with their talents. Because they had done so, they each received what appears to be the same reward, even though one had originally been given more than the other, and subsequently earned more with it. Both servants received the reward of hearing the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Both received the reward of continuing to remain in fellowship or being associated with the master. Both were put in charge of many things. Both have been invited to enter into the joy of their Lord, or as the NIV puts it, come and share in your master's happiness. I love that. Could there be any greater gift for a Christian who has never seen Jesus and yet has lived his entire life as his follower? than to one day meet Jesus face to face and hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. What the role of the elect will be in the age to come is a fascinating, really cool subject that's yet another thing that I've found worthy of its own standalone book someday. But for now, we have clues elsewhere in Scripture regarding what it means to be put in charge of many things. All these following scriptures I'm going to read you, like the parable we're examining right now, apply to a future time after the return of Jesus. First, here's Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. Before that, if you listen really closely, perhaps you can hear the sound of my wife practicing the fiddle in the background. Anyway, this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken into shivers, even as I received from my father. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 to 13 says, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 to 3 says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, And he hath made us kings and priests unto God, and his Father. To him be the glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Here's Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And finally, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. The faithful servant of Jesus in this age will be given a great deal of responsibility in the coming age. In the kingdom that Jesus brings to this earth and beyond, his faithful servants will act as something like his deputies in making decisions as they govern on his behalf in his kingdom that will extend throughout the entire world. This is how we will rule with Jesus. Under Jesus' authority, his faithful servants will have complete dominion, power, and authority to execute those decisions. That's how we will reign with Jesus. The faithful servants of Jesus will act as magistrates and arbitrators among the inhabitants of the earth, wherever their master has assigned them in his kingdom. This will make us 
judges on Jesus' behalf. And finally, the faithful servants of Jesus will make sure the physical needs of the people are being met and serve as ministers and teachers for the people regarding spiritual matters. This is one way that we'll act in our role as priests on behalf of Jesus. What's it mean to be given an invitation to take part in the joy or the happiness of the Lord? God literally only knows. Followers of Jesus cannot possibly imagine all the joys that lay ahead of them. The mere concept of eternity is something that will take a while to sink in. In eternity! Our lives now are spent rushing about with a looming sense of urgency, as though the clock is always ticking and our time is running out. Many look forward to life slowing down in retirement. I did. Now, I'm retired, and I still rush around with a sense of urgency as if time is running out. Since retiring, even since the time that I wrote the book that this podcast is based on, called Watch, I've had two heart attacks. The first heart attack was when the major artery on the right side of my heart became completely blocked. If not for a speedy trip to the hospital in an ambulance, I'd be talking to Jesus right now, and not you. The second heart attack, a little more than a year later, resulted in my being shocked back to life after my heart had stopped for two and a half minutes, only to awaken to a new idea of what the worst physical pain a human could experience is. Well, I'm fine now. <laughs> it's been a couple of years since the last one. But having two unexpected heart attacks has given me a much deeper understanding of my mortality. The urgency I experience is greater now than ever. <laughs> there are things that I want to accomplish. I want to finish the book I'm working on before I go. There are places I want to see together with my wife. At times, I wonder if God will ever allow me to even finish this podcast series. Nevertheless, God's will, not mine, will be done. And I am great with that. How blissful it will be for the elect of God to have the dimension of time come to an end. What will it be like to have a body that's imperishable, coupled with no time limitations? A body that doesn't know hunger, loneliness, sickness, soreness, tiredness, or sadness. A body that's no longer subject to death, and no longer in bondage to hundreds of generations of genetic breakdown caused by the fall of man. But seriously, the joy of the Lord? One day... I'll not need a bungee to jump into a river that's a hundred feet below, or an aircraft, wingsuit, or parachute to soar over the mountains. I, like my master, will be able to walk across the top of a raging sea. If Mount Everest survives the second coming, and my master gives me any vacation time, I plan on climbing it without the aid of an oxygen tank or ropes. Maybe I'll do it with Moses, the Apostle Paul, and Jesus if they're available. There's places I'd love to visit that I likely will never see in my mortal lifetime. If they still have any appeal to me after Jesus returns, there'll be plenty of time to explore everything. One day, I won't have to feel bad about children around the world who don't have enough to eat, because my master will stop hunger. I won't have to pray for cancer patients, because cancer will only be known to history since Jesus, the great healer, will be the king of the world. Hospitals will be empty. Crime, corruption, and injustice will not fill the headlines. Jesus will abolish such things as he rules with a rod of iron, and he allows you and I to participate in that work with him. Our God is a God of infinite wisdom and creativity. In addition to the responsibilities in the coming age already mentioned, one of the things the Bible tells us that we'll be doing in eternity will be serving God in His temple. While on temple duty, we will never know who or what will next come through the door of God's throne room. Our physical universe is contained in three dimensions, yet goes on forever in all directions. Jesus demonstrated that his glorified body had the ability to travel in any one of those directions and even pass through matter. How long would it take to explore an infinite universe if we're allowed to do so? Is there an infinite amount of things we cannot even dream of left to discover? 
Will our glorified bodies feel things that our current bodies can't? Wow. We can't even begin to imagine the depth of the joy that lies ahead for the faithful servant of Jesus. But what about the third servant? Like the other two, he was both called a servant and given the same thing of value by the master, although in a smaller quantity. Unlike the other two, this servant didn't do anything with what he was given. What happened as a result? Matthew twenty-five twenty-four to 25 tells us. Then the one who had been entrusted with one talent came and said, Lord, I know that you are a tough man, reaping where you have not planted, and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid when I went and hid your talent in the earth. Look, here's what's yours. The servant with one talent, like the other two, had been entrusted with the master's possessions. The master, knowing this servant, gave to him according to his ability. Relative to the trust placed in the other two servants, the master didn't trust this servant's abilities very much. It turns out, with good reason. This servant knew he had nothing to show for what had been entrusted to him, yet he seems to approach the master almost defiantly. He even appears to attack the master's character, calling him a hard or tough man. Regardless of what the third servant may have been thinking, or the reasons behind his excuses, the third servant was too lazy to do anything with the talents he'd been given. So he buried the one talent he was given in the ground so he could return it as given to him by the master. His stated motivation for taking this approach was fear of the master. How clever this lazy servant must have thought himself to be, having not expended any energy on gaining talents, only to have to give them up to this hard man he falsely called his master. This misjudgment of the master's character, along with the wicked servant's laziness, did not serve him well. This is Matthew 25, 26-28. His master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant! You knew that I reap where I have not planted, and gather where I have not scattered? Then you should have put the money on deposit with the bankers. So when I returned, I would have received what belongs to me with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. The master first answers the servant by calling him a couple of names, wicked and slothful or lazy. The question on the part of the master, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed, is not an admission of anything regarding the master's character or his business practices. The master is simply feeding back to the servant what he just heard the wicked servant say and is confirming it with him. The master's statement appears to be a challenge of disbelief at the excuse the wicked servant had to offer. The master also appears to be holding the servant accountable to his own beliefs about the master. To paraphrase the master's statement, If you think I'm such a hard man, then you would have at least invested my money for me rather than doing nothing. Because you didn't, I don't believe your excuse. I think you're just wicked, lazy, and no servant at all. The master knew the servant had the ability to at least invest the talent to earn interest, and he failed to do so. It must have taken more of an effort for the servant to dig a hole, bury the talent, keep track of where he buried it, then dig it up, than if he would have just simply put the talent into the bank to earn interest. Perhaps he could have even teamed up and even invested it with one of the other servants. As a result of misjudging the master and his being wicked and lazy with what was entrusted to him, this servant had what was given to him taken away. The talent he had was given to the servant that proved to be faithful and turned his five talents into ten. It is noteworthy that the master says, Give it to him who has ten talents, as though that servant was still in possession of all the ten talents. The master had not taken the original talents. He, in fact, doubled the servant's original talents given to him. Let's move on to Matthew 25, verses 29 to 30. For everyone that has shall be given, and he shall have in excess. But the one who has nothing, even what he has, will be taken away. And expel the useless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Jesus ends this parable with a summary statement regarding those faithful servants who have been given much. They'll be given more upon return of the master. But 
He also said that those who have nothing or very little would even have that taken away from them. What's that mean? Being purchased out of bondage to sin and given the assurance of spending eternity with Jesus, His servants have already truly been given much. How much more will Jesus' love for His servants be openly shown upon His return to this earth? I, for one, will enjoy my new eternal glorified body that will no longer only know things in part, but rather in the presence of the King of Kings, know everything fully. That's a whole lot of love that my Master will bestow upon me. Conversely, there are those who have heard the truth or at least observed the reality of the existence of the Creator around them, but deny His existence. Maybe they've even demonstrated knowledge or the act of love carried out for them by Jesus in the eternal gospel, and maybe they've even declared that they believe it to be true. But they've done nothing with this knowledge. Even with this knowledge and confession, they failed to truly make Jesus their Lord. It's those people who reject the love of Jesus that's freely offered to them that have nothing. It's through their own self-centered wickedness and laziness that they'll even lose what they do have. They will be the ultimate losers. In the parable of the seeds and the sower we've already discussed, Jesus clearly told us that there are people who may originally profess to be Christians, may even have a salvation experience, receiving what they heard with joy, but the gospel never takes hold. This is likely the case with the wicked servant who was only given one talent. Jesus made the statement, from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. How can you take away anything from someone who already has nothing? The answer is that even those people who walk the face of the earth, who call themselves atheists, are still living under the influence of Christ's love. It's the grace of God that's holding this universe together. It's God's will that's restraining Satan. God is putting off the end of the world because it's His desire that not one should perish. Out of His love for us, God will continue to provide for the just and the unjust right up until they die or He returns. God created the universe in which we live, declared it to be good, and made our planet resilient in order that we might continue to live on it. Both the one who's in rebellion against God and the devout follower of Jesus are the beneficiaries of all of these things. There are many who are not followers of Christ who have not been reborn to live forever. In that sense, they have nothing. Yet, they're still living under the influence of and receiving the benefit of God's love. Upon Judgment Day, that love too will be taken away from them. In the parable of the talents, we find imagery associated with going to hell. The disciples heard similar words used just a little earlier in another parable concerning wicked servants. Wicked and lazy servants will be sent into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same imagery is used often by Jesus in Scripture. These are not idle threats. Hell's a real place. It's meant to be a penalty and long-lasting deterrent to sin and incentive for relying on Jesus. Those who are not true servants of the Master will spend eternity apart from Him. They'll be eternally separated from the love of God and left with absolutely nothing. In summary, the parable of the talents doesn't have much to do with answering the disciples' original questions. Jesus is no longer only explaining when the things he spoke of will happen or what will be the sign of his coming and the end of the age. What he's talking about in the parable of the talents has everything to do with what his followers should be doing until such time as he returns. Jesus tells his parable towards the end of his discourse as if to say, So when I do return, these are my expectations of what I will find. In the parable of the talents, we can identify Jesus as the master who goes away. The master in the parable says he's going away for a long time. Jesus did go away, and it's been a long time since he left. The servants in the parable are those who represent themselves to be followers of Jesus. In the end, not all these servants turn out to be faithful or actual servants. Those that want to use this parable to support the somewhat shallow theory that it represents a formula for financial success will need to look elsewhere in Scripture.
The talents that the master leaves with his servants may be best defined as a combination of God-given love, faith, and wisdom. All three of those things can grow and can be utilized by the servants of Jesus in numerous ways. Just as some in the parable are given more talents to use than others, some followers of Christ have been given a greater ability to show or deliver God's love to others. God's love can be shown in more ways than can be listed here. Spending love and wisdom can be subtle or overt, public or secret. It can involve praying. It can involve dying. It can involve how you use your money. Putting God-given faith, wisdom, and love to work can involve using one's natural abilities or spiritual gifts. It's between each of us and God alone how those talents are spent. Love, faith, and wisdom that's given by God will never pass away. Love is the essence of the top two commandments from God found in the New Testament. Without love, everything else is worth nothing. We obtain God's love through God-given faith or belief and effectively utilize it only through God-given wisdom. Those true servants that have used their talents wisely, that's to say, used their abilities to wisely show Christ's love to others, will be rewarded upon the return of Jesus with eternal life. Those who are not actual servants of Christ, or who are servants in name only, are destined to spend eternity apart from the love of God, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Next time, we'll talk about Jesus' last parable he gave during the Olivet Discourse. The podcast following that will be the last in this series. I'll talk next time about where, Lord willing, I'll be going from there. Until then, God bless, be at peace, stay watchful, and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.